0: Well good morning. Happy Easter. Man, is anyone else's like legs tired from those songs and stuff? Like, man, I'm in the back dancing around, running like it's a good time. Happy Easter. We're so glad you're here. My name is Pastor Milo. If it's your first time here this morning, we are so glad that you decided to come today. Your shoes look good. Your hair looks good. Your jackets look nice. Like, man. You look nice this morning. Aren't you proud of yourselves? Give yourself a round of applause, yeah. Everybody looks sharp today. So I, I went and got a haircut this week because I was in the military, and that's what you do when you have to get dressed up for something special for something, you go get your haircut. Anyone else get your haircut this week? Yeah, I think all of you are at the same barber I was at because it was a long wait. Uh, the barbershop that I go to has a certain vibe. Uh, maybe it's not the same thing the place that you go to, but it has this vibe. It's, it's an Italian owner, it's an Italian barber shop, and so uh, there are no prices listed as to how much uh, a haircut costs when you come in. And I pay the price that I'm told to pay uh, because that's what I'm told to pay, but I'm really not certain what the guy who sits next to me pays. I, I could be getting ripped off, I have no idea. I really have no idea. It reminds me of… In New York City, there's this pizza place, anytime I visit it, it's under the Brooklyn Bridge, it's called the Grimaldi's Pizza. And their tagline is, we make you a pizza you can't refuse. That's, it's on the back of their shirts and everything else, and, and literally, that's, that's the atmosphere that they want for you there. When you come in, they tell you where to sit. If there's a group of eight of you, three of you might sit over here, and five of you might sit over there. And, and they're gonna sit you down and they're gonna bring the pizza out to you, and you're not really sure whether you're gonna get the pizza that you ordered, but you will eat whatever they bring out to you. And they let you know that too, they're gonna put a pizza in front of you, and I would not send that thing back. Very intimidating. Uh, It's a cash-only system there. Uh, You know, what generation are we — that we should be able to use a card here, but even as you pay this — enormous man takes out his billfold and counts out, you know, thousands of dollars in front of you to give you your change, and you assume that you should probably tell him to keep the change regardless of whatever you've got coming back to you. And in some ways, that's the very same way this little barbershop that I go to kind of has that same atmosphere. Until very re- recently, it was cash only. You don't know how much you're paying for something, you're not quite sure what you're gonna get, and maybe their tagline ought to be, we're gonna give you a haircut that you can't refuse. Because you can come out of there with half of your head messed up, and you are not gonna say a word. Because it's almost as like they're standing and looking at you and like, because at the end of the barbershop haircut experience they take a straight razor and put it to your neck. <laughs> you sure got a nice head of hair here. <laughs> Hate to mess it up, you know? So I got my haircut, got ready for church, was ready for this morning. My son Elias also, we decided he needed to get his hair cut this week as well. And uh, he went to uh, the salon to get his hair cut. He went to a different place. I don't know if it was called Great Clips or Super Clips or the Cut and Corral, whatever it was. Some of you know that reference. And so he gets his haircut and he's he goes in there and the, the you know and men if that's where you go to get your haircut you go to the salon to get your haircut you know that's fine I'm not you know making fun of you this morning I'm sure that you get a nice haircut and if you want to get your hair shampooed that's that's nice too when you go up to the register they'll take your money when you take it out of your purse just like everybody else <laughs> So Elias is there, he's five years old, getting his hair cut, and the two ladies, uh, the stylists are cutting hair and they're talking to each other and asking him questions about, are you excited for Easter, is the Easter bunny gonna come, and are you gonna go pick up eggs around, and different, asking these kind of questions about Easter, and the two of them start having a conversation with each other. One saying, I love Easter, it's so much fun, we get to, you know, celebrate and go to church and different things like that, it's, it's just one of my favorite times of year. And the other girl responds, she says, I always get in an argument with my my husband about Easter and, and you know, we're just celebrating Jesus' birthday and he doesn't understand why it's so exciting. And the other girl looks, back says, Christmas is Jesus' birthday, not Easter. Some of you didn't even pick it up when I said it here. And they go back and forth and finally she turns to my wife Erin and says, I don't know why my husband makes such a big deal about it. I'm the one who goes to church anyway. And she's the one who said that it was his birthday. (laughs) Listen, we are not here celebrating this morning because Easter is Jesus' birthday. We are here celebrating. This morning is Resurrection Sunday, Jesus was put in the grave on Good Friday, and three days later, three mornings later, the grave starts to shake. Three mornings later, light starts to shine out of the tomb. Three days later, the doors blast open, the stone is rolled away. Three days later, the one who was dead, all that we had put our hope in was dead, but three days later, he comes out of the the grave. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and just as the angel said, He is not here. The one you're looking for is not here. He is what? He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's why we're here this morning. Why would we seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good that Easter comes in the springtime. It it, like, like if this week, if you got out at all, like Thursday afternoon, people suddenly came out of hibernation. We haven't seen them. Uh, This happened last year. It didn't happen this year, but last year one of our neighbors came out and suddenly she was going to have a baby within a couple of weeks. I didn't even have any idea she was pregnant. (laughs) We just hadn't seen her, and all of a sudden she comes out and she's about to give birth. And, and so, so, there's something about looking outside and what was, was dead, and it didn't look like there's any sign of life out there, now you're starting to see new life come. Don't you think that's a pretty spectacular time for us to be able to come and celebrate Easter together? Specifically, I'm so glad that you came here this morning. Randall Church, I'm glad you're here and celebrating Easter with us. As Brian said earlier, here at Randall we are fixated on being able to communicate to you again and again that there are three relationships that we believe matter. We are fixated on helping you find your place in these three relationships. The relationship with Christ, the relationship with the church, and relationship with the community. We like to say it this way, you matter to God, you belong here, and you can make a difference. You see, this church has been in existence since 1826. It's a unique expression for us. None of us were here when this church was started. There are no charter members of this church, but this church has decided that it is going to reach this community since 1826. We ring a bell in the bell tower that was put together, that was molded during the Civil War, friends. And that bell rings and rings out the truth. And it's even inscribed on it. It says this, let him that heareth say, come. It's inscribed right on the side of the bell. And I am so glad that you've come this morning because we are once again going to proclaim the gospel truth here this Easter Sunday. I am so glad you decided to come here today. And it's a perfect Sunday for you to come. It's a new sermon series. We're digging into uh, the book of Romans. We've been there for a while, but there's a shift. There's this turn that happens in the book of Romans. We're starting this sermon series called More Than Conquerors. Would you get your Bibles out this morning if you've got a copy of God's Word? Took to the, turn to the book of Romans. If you don't have your own copy, there's a, a Bible in front of you there in the pew, that black Bible. Uh, we're at Romans chapter 8, or be in the new international version if you want to look it up on your smartphone, smart device, new international version, the, the version app is an easy one to be able to find your way around. If you're in that black Bible in front of you, you're on page 1183, 1183 is where we are going this morning. We are more than conquerors. The book of Romans, Paul gives his thesis statement to the book, or to the letter, or even some call this the Gospel of Paul, what he is writing, he wants us to understand. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the Gospel, friends. You see, the gospel is not the wading pool that you go in in the summer with your kids that is ankle deep. No, the gospel is the ocean that you dive into and the power and the tremendous value that you feel when those waves rush over you. That is the gospel. We're not talking about something elementary. We are talking about something that can change your life. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes to everyone who believes." Imagine if you will this text interchange between two co-workers checking in on you. How are you doing? Not great. I'm back to work after the funeral. Well, I'm praying for you. Don't bother. God doesn't care. I'll never see my mom again. This is awful. It's okay. God is still there. Is He? He never answers my prayers. I'd like to believe you, but... See, this is the world we live in. This is the real world we live in. And so, with a sermon entitled, More Than Conquerors, and being able to say, this is more than my unbelief. I have to believe that there are some of you here this morning, when we show a video, when we sing these songs, that there's someone here this morning. I would like to believe in the thing that you are celebrating, but here in Romans chapter 8, we find we are more than conquerors. Because he is more than our unbelief. But this morning, if you use your bulletins this morning, you'll see there's a white sheet of paper. It'll take you an outline. It'll carry you through where I want to go this morning as discussion points. And here's your first fill-in for you this morning that I understand we're going to wrestle with here together. Here is the point. The two big ifs that we must wrestle with. The two big ifs we must wrestle with. If you have your Bibles open there to Romans chapter 8, look down to verse 11, if you will. If the spirit of him who was raised, Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. There are two big ifs here. First one is written out very specifically. The second one is implied. The first one is, if Jesus was raised from the dead. And then the second one is this, if Christ lives in you. The first if being if Jesus was raised from the dead, and the second one being if Christ lives in you. That means if Jesus' resurrection was real, is this story factual? Did God actually raise Jesus from the dead? The second if has to do with your conversion to Jesus. Have you received the Spirit of God in your heart? Does the Spirit of God lead your life? Has He adopted you into His family? Are you called a child of God? Has He given you the character of that that would emulate the Heavenly Father? You see, if either of these ifs is untrue to you, then the promise that Jesus gives life and gives it abundantly is in vain. And your mortal body, your, your life here on earth will become di- confused, distracted, not sure of what is going to happen next. And so your next fill-ins will follow suit. The two most important questions I can pose for you this morning are this. The two big questions you must answer are this. Are you sure that Jesus was raised from the dead? Are you sure that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Are you sure? This morning, let me try to point to the source of assurance for these two questions. Question one, are you sure God raised Jesus from the dead? So if you didn't want to believe in the resurrection, if you didn't want to follow suit with what is being written here, then there's a couple of things that you could do to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thing number one would be produce the dead body of Jesus Christ. Produce the dead body of Jesus Christ. If you cannot do that, then here's what you would need to do. You would need to explain away the overwhelming evidence that He rose with alternate theories that make just as much sense. So let's talk about them. Here's a few of the alternate theories. The body was stolen. This was the theory that is put there right in Scripture, we see it right away, that the body was stolen. Was it stolen by disciples or maybe stolen by guards? Or well, there's even the theory that says maybe it was stolen by Joseph of Arimathea, the one whose grave he was buried in. Maybe he stole Jesus away. The body was stolen. Or maybe Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Many call this the swoon theory based on the idea that he fainted and was, had lost so much blood that, that they thought that he was dead, but he wasn't actually dead, and so they buried him alive and three days later he was able to shake it off and come out of the tomb. This is the theory that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. Another theory would be that the woman on Sunday morning went to the wrong tomb that Sunday morning. That the women went to the wrong tomb. Don't you think, if that was the case, that someone ought to check the other tomb? If if that's really the theory that we have is, oops, we went to the wrong tomb, they found that it was empty, and they told us the story, that you could actually double-check that and go back to the correct tomb and find his body there. Or lastly, that there was a twin brother of Jesus, or an imposter who looked very similar to Jesus. Like a magician, there are times where magicians do this, and they are twins, where you you think that you're looking at the magician, but really that's the twin of the magician who is there. And so, where would that magician have gone? Where would that other body double have gone? Where was that twin after the fact? And wouldn't you expect that the half-brothers of Jesus would know something about this twin? Wouldn't you expect that the Christmas story that we know so well would talk about the fact that there were twins born to Mary? Wouldn't there be some other understanding? Wouldn't there be some other evidence of this? You see, the problem with these explanations is it takes just as much faith to believe in those explanations as it does to go with the New Testament's account. These alternate theories leave just as many or more questions unanswered than they explain. There's actually more evidence there for us to look at, to study, to pour through, to dig in. From from the stance of an archaeological find, there's more evidence there for us to look at than there's evidence for George Washington crossing the Delaware. We can actually have more evidence to describe what happened there. So back to question number one. Are you sure God raised Jesus from the dead? See, at the end of the day, this question really boils down to the credibility of the witnesses. How do you decide whether you can believe in what a witness is saying? How do you decide whether their testimony is accurate? Here in Romans chapter 8, specifically, we are looking at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. How do you come to a reasonable conviction that his assertions are true, specifically that what he is saying about the resurrection of Jesus is true? So if you were serving on a a panel, or if you were serving as the jury for a trial, you would have some questions that you would need to ask yourself when it comes to the witness that is being put in front of you. Am I open to the possible truth of what the witness is saying? That I can make a decision that would even alter a person's life if what he is saying is true? Does the witness's moral character make it unlikely that he is given easily to deception or an outright fabrication of their story. (coughs) Does the witness offer any supporting evidences for his claim? Is he contradicting himself? Are there any other credible corroborating witnesses, or is he all alone in his claim? You see, the reason that I'm a Christian is because I answer yes to all of these statements. Yes, I'm open to the truth that the Apostle Paul, when what he is saying and making life changes based on that because of the decisions that I make there. Yes, I've seen enough of Paul and read enough from his 13 letters to convince me of his moral integrity. He is not easily a prey for deception and he is not a fabricator. Yes, Paul is giving supporting evidence like his own very public conversion from a church persecutor to a church planter and like the signs and wonders he did among the church, and the more that I study, the more I'm convinced of the coherence of his total message, that it all ties together, he does not contradict himself. And yes, there are other credible witnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and even Jesus himself when he said, I will destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. The witnesses pass the credibility test. You see, if Christ did not really rise from the dead, the transformation of the apostles and the spread and the endurance of the church in spite of persecution would end up being a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. A fair-minded person examining these facts could only conclude that the resurrection of Christ is just as much factual history as George Washington crossing the Delaware. Most people fail to become Christians, however, not because the evidence is lacking, but because the interest is lacking. Most people fail to become Christians not because the evidence is lacking, but because the interest is lacking. Question one, are you sure God raised Jesus from the dead? Question two, are you sure that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you? It is not enough to be persuaded that Jesus rose from the grave. It is not enough. We read in Scripture that the devil is convinced of this. He knows this to be fact, but that conviction does not save Satan, nor will it secure his resurrection or his eternal security. For the, in order for the resurrection of Jesus to any good, we have to have a change, a belief in our hearts that Jesus raised from the dead, and that we've asked the Spirit of God to dwell in our hearts. It is not enough to be persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead. As we've made our way through the book of Romans, it is not enough to live a good life, the Apostle Paul tells us. It is not enough to live a moral life. It is not enough to live a squeaky, clean life. It is not enough to live a life of personal devotion and sacrifice and self-sacrifice for others. It is not. Enough. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, in order for the resurrection of Jesus to do us any good, we must receive the Spirit of God in our hearts. So that's why the title of the sermon says, More Than My Unbelief. So it's there on the bottom of your outline because I want to make sure it's a reminder to you, this is the one thing you need to know. If you miss anything else I said this morning, this is the one thing. This is the bottom line. This is the main takeaway. This is the one thing you need to know, and it's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to memorize this together this morning, all right? You're going to say it with me. There is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Now what does that mean, that key word, no condemnation? I'm convinced that the essence of Christianity, that the central foundation of the gospel is found here. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Very quickly, I'm going to take us through a few of the pictures that we see in the New Testament of Jesus and how he lives this out and how it will enlighten us for what it really means to have this concept of no condemnation. There is no condemnation. If you want to write this on the side of your notes, if you want to take this, just take this in this morning. There is no condemnation, so you are forgiven. If you're familiar, in Mark chapter 2, there's a story of these four guys who bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. They bring him through the crowds and through the streets. There's all these people want to see Jesus, they hear that he's healing people. And these four men bring their best friend and they, they bring him to the house and they climb up the side of the house and they get on the roof and they literally tear open the roof and lower his body down, lower him down on a mat in front of Jesus. If you remember the story. You'd expect Jesus to tell this man to get up and walk, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus takes him by the hand, looks him in the eye and says, son, your sins are forgiven. All that his four friends went through to get him there, to pull apart the roof, to lower him down, to get him close to Jesus, and Jesus isn't going to heal him physically. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. You understand the biblical truth that runs all the way across Scripture. That when we look and we look deeply, we see that sickness, disease, and ultimately death starts in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. And sin and death follow us, and our sin nature and our human nature and it continues to pile on us and pile onto us. And the only way to get away from that is to have a new creation where all things will be made new, all things are redeemed, all things are forgiven. And Jesus looks into this man's eyes. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a bold claim. For Jesus to claim to be able to forgive sins means that he was basically equating himself to God. The creator of the universe. So if you look back here at Romans Chapter 8, you are forgiven. This means that you no longer have to live, verse 2, under a continuous low-lying black cloud. This is not what your life has to look like. There's a new power in operation. The spirit of life is in Christ. It's like a strong wind that he magnificently blows that black cloud away, freeing you from a lifetime of sin and a brutal tyranny in the hands of death. It all is blown away. Your sins are forgiven. You see, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he dealt with this struggling humanity and he personally endorsed it. He personally took on the human condition and set things right once and for all. There is now no condemnation. You are forgiven. There is now no condemnation. You have a fresh start. Verse five those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live according to the Spirit, however, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind that was governed by the flesh is death, but the mind that is governed by the Spirit finds life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. You are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Him. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus sits down with Jesus. Nicodemus was a sharp guy. He was like the leader in the Supreme Court, was kind of his level of authority that he had. He's a religious Pharisee of the day. He He knows the law, he knows the Scriptures, and he has this major conversation with Jesus. And Jesus tells them, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, unless you start over. All that you've accomplished is worthless. You have to understand, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this is a very confusing thought. It's a very odd place to be. It's almost like he's saying, Nicodemus, you are in a room where all the handles to the doors are too tall and you're too short and you can't reach them no matter what you are going to do. You cannot get out of this situation. And then he gives us John 3, 16. He said, you've got no options. All you can do is look, he says. Look where? He says, look at me. God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, and whosoever believes in me. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. It's a new birth. Nicodemus is not about what you can do, but it's what I have done. Romans chapter 8 verse 5. See, those who know and think that they know what they can do on their own end up obsessing with measuring their own moral muscle and never get around to exercising. it in this real life, this flesh keeps pulling on them even though they want to live in the spirit. Obsession with self in the matters is a dead end where God leaves us out in the open to a spacious and free life. There's now no condemnation. You get a fresh start. You are free. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Jesus is dragged out into the street because a situation, there's a mob starting to form And what they have is a woman that they have pulled out from being caught in the act of adultery, and they have pulled her out into the center of the street, and they've also pulled Jesus out, and they said, now what are you going to do, Jesus? They think that they've got him trapped because this woman has been caught in an adulterous relationship. She's been caught in the middle of sin, and the Mosaic law says we must stone her. And if Jesus says that he isn't going to uphold the Mosaic law, then he is going to look like a fool. And at the same time, if they're in the middle of the street, If they pick up stones and begin to stone her and murder this woman who has committed adultery, the Roman rule says that they cannot do this. The Roman rule says there would be no public executions of any kind unless the Romans are involved. And so he is now going, if he moves forward, the Romans will be after him. If he doesn't move forward, uh, he looks like a fool who doesn't uphold the law. They've got him. So he says this. It says, let's take the law to the fullest extent then. Those of you standing in this circle who have kept the law to its fullest extent, those of you who are so passionate about the law, who love it so dearly, you pick up the first stone. And one by one, the stones begin to fall. And they begin to walk away until the only people standing there in the street are this adulterous woman and her Savior, Jesus. All of a sudden, these guys are gone. They've backed away. She finds herself face to face with Jesus. And he looks through the tears in her eyes, and he says, where are they? Where are the ones who are here to condemn you? And she says, no one is here. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and what? Sin no more. Where's the justice in this? Where's the justice of God in this? The justice of God, which will be seen weeks from that point, is when Jesus walks across the road, picks up the cross, and walks to Calvary. He radically upholds the justice of the law because He is going to take her place. Because he is looking at her and saying, go and sin no more, because I will stand there, ma'am. I will take your spot. There is no condemnation. You are free. So Romans 8 says it stands to reason, doesn't it, that an ever-living, alive, ever-present God who raised Jesus from the dead, when he moves into your life, when he moves into your heart, he'll do the same for you and for others. When God lives and breathes in you as he does, and surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. There is now no condemnation. You are free. You see, God doesn't want you to be unsure if you have his spirit dwelling in you. There is therefore now no condemnation. As we close, as the band makes their way forward, let me share with you how this personally affected, affects me. There's a man named Sheriff Red Shattuck. He died last year, I believe he was 97 years old when he passed away. But I shared this story with him six months before he died, and he asked, he called, he found, he got someone to get a hold of me and said, will you, will you, on my deathbed, will you share that story one more time? This is the story that I wanted to share with him because the legacy of this man, at 97 years old, I said, I I want you to know what you did for me. I was eight years old, I went to a Christian school, my parents had what you call a drug problem. They drugged me to church Sunday morning, they drugged me to church Sunday night. They drug me to church, went, some of you are shaking your head like, you fool, all right. I'd gone forward multiple times at church. When I say by going forward, at those days, there's an altar call, we ask people to come forward and make a public statement of faith in front of everyone, right? And so at eight years old, I had already done that multiple times in church. I had already done that at the VBS program there at the church. I had already come forward again for the junior church. I would go forward seemingly every week. And this older man saw me there at summer camp where they had a chapel service every night of the week, and I had already gone forward three or four times that week. And this kind old man pulled me aside. He saw that God was working in my heart, and he showed me this verse, and I will not forget it, and I hope you don't forget it either. It comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13. It's the end of the book. John has made a case for really what it means to live a life for Christ. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And he shared with me that night at eight years old, I remember very vividly, because he had these old gnarly hands and he had to put his hands together. And the only way I can, there's the Allstate commercials, like you're in good hands with Allstate, like that was kind of the idea of what was in. He said, when God has you in His hands, and you know that He has you in His hands, no one and nothing can pluck you out of His hands. You see, in that moment, at eight years old, I've always been able to answer these two ifs. I haven't always made the right decisions, but I've always been able to answer these two ifs. In that moment, since that moment, I have always been able to answer those two questions. And today, this morning, I pray that you would believe today in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you can put a stick in this day, a pinpoint in this day, April 21st, 2019, I was at Randall Church, it was Easter Sunday, the choir was singing, the organ was playing, the piano was getting pounded on. I remember that day. And I know that those who believe in the name of the Son of God will have eternal life. Ushers, would you come forward this morning? This is a time in our service that, as we said earlier, there's those connection cards that you can ask questions about what's going on here in our church, but it's also a way for you to respond. Sometimes God works not just in the sermon this time here, this this challenge here. Maybe God was working in you during one of the songs. Maybe God was working with you during the first video that we showed, in the first five minutes that you were here. Would you write something down this morning? Say, God is doing this in my life. I'll be in the back after the service, I would love to talk to you about that, but if you write something down, drop it in that offering plate, this is our analog way of following up with you, okay? We take, physically take those sheets of paper, we pray over them, we say, God, what are you doing in people's lives? What are you doing here at 6301 Main Street that we are a part of? Let us celebrate that, let us pray for you, let us call you, let us follow up and say, what else might God be up to? If you're here this morning and God is working in your heart, I pray today that you would know, bottom line, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe. Please don't leave here today without knowing that you believe that Jesus not only died on the cross for your sins, not only was raised from the dead on the third day, but that He dwells in you. Dear Lord, we love You, we thank You for Your Word, we pray that it is has spoken clearly Lord, I pray that I have not gotten in, a way, in the way of your word articulating itself. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. There are many here this morning who need to respond. They need to respond either first, because they do not know you yet, or give them the boldness to take that step. Second, there are those who have taken that step years ago, and yet they're living a life that does not know or is not certain, or does not respond in a way that would demonstrate the power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. But let us live a life in power with you. and As we're about to sing, Lord, then we come together one day in that glorious day we celebrate and we sing and we worship far louder with far more exuberance than we have here this morning when we come together in glory. We thank you for that day to come. We thank you for this day that we have now. We celebrate you today. In Jesus' name, amen.